being addicted to prescription opiates for the vast majority of people was not a choice. People moved to heroin after that, after the government tightened the grip on prescription opiates. But the addiction in your brain was already done. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Okay, everybody. Uh, I'm here today with Raj Gupta, who is one of the co-founders of FLT Medical, whose flagship program is uh, findlocaltreatment.com, which is really a revolutionary uh, platform for people with um, an addiction problem or have a loved one with an addiction problem, um, a easier, more uh, comprehensive way to find help quickly. So, Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So this was, uh, we were, we got hooked up from a, a mutual friend, um, Dr. Nav Kang, shout out. Um, but ever since I heard about this, uh, it's so hard for people to find treatment, access treatment, and have the kind of the guts to ask for help. Right. Um, so I, I can't wait to, to get in and, and talk about this and how it all came to be and, and where it is now. But first, let's uh, can we get some background on sure. you and a little bit of your story. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm I'm from Ohio, um, and I grew up in Troy, Ohio, which is a which is a small suburb um, outside of Dayton. Uh, went to went to school there uh, basically until college, um, and uh, went to Columbia for school. Uh, studied economics. Um, you know, dabbled in computer science, dabbled in finance. Um, left school, went to San Francisco for two years. I worked for an advertising technology company. Um, really learned a lot of, uh, I guess, what technology can do um, for us um, when I was out there. Uh, and then about three years ago, I decided to move back home. Um, you know, it, it's hard not to hear about the epidemic. Um, and for me, this is a crisis that has affected me personally and my family. It's affected uh, my community. And um and many communities across the country. And I think if there was, a, if there was ever a time where we need to bring um, people back home to solve this problem, it's, it, it was then and it's still now. So mm -hmm. uh, moved back home um, and found a lot of amazing people along the way who have the same mission as we do, uh, which is to help people find the quality treatment that they deserve um, for this disease. And uh, here we are, three years later, um, we work with um, about 25 hospitals across the state of Ohio, um, and we help their clinicians, help, we help them refer patients to quality treatment centers uh, in real time. Um, and it's, it's one of the biggest barriers in finding treatment, and we want to make sure that no person in this country um, that is struggling with addiction, that's struggling with opiate use disorder or substance use disorder ever has to... Um, go through a lot of hurdles um, or go through any hurdles, to be honest, to, to find quality treatment. Now, did you leave California with this idea and, and concept and package ready to roll out when you got here? Or did you kind of build it along the way and just have a start with a passion and then figure all the nuts and bolts out as you went? Yeah. Uh, no. I mean, I, when I moved back home, um, my intention of coming back home was just to see if I could make myself useful. Um, 
again, I mean, when it, with this in mind, with this in mind, correct. I mean, I, I, I mean, again, th- th- when I say this was in the news every day, but I mean, imagine three years ago, we hear about it less today. It doesn't mean the problem has gone away. It's, it's still, it's still extremely bad. Um, but I moved back home because, you know, this, this particular problem was affecting my community. And, um, you know, one of the things that I guess my mom always taught me when I was growing up was, uh, to help those around you, help the people that, you know, brought you up and raised you. And um, so it just seemed like the perfect time for me to come home and kind of think about where can my skill set fit into this? Is there a role that technology has to help those in need? Um, so I came home and the first the first 12 months were just spent asking questions. Um, and it was spent uh, meeting people like Dr. Kang, um, meeting a lot of great people who every single day encounter patients and families who are struggling with addiction, um, who work at health systems. Um, and, you know, we, I met nurses who are on the front line of this epidemic even today. Um, these are the nurses where, you know, a patient is ready for treatment in that small window um, and the nurse has to look at them and, and sometimes give them their own cell phone number um, because they don't know what exists around them. And uh, most importantly, they don't know who can accept this patient's insurance um, who can treat this patient um, based on that patient's particular addiction and who can actually accept them today, um, which are very important questions if you want to get patients in. So, um, you know, after 12 months of research, you find a lot of places that can be improved. Um, this is, this was the place that, um, you know, that we kind of dedicated our, our time to um, because it just seemed so pressing and, and we met too many families and too many people um, that went through this. Just and, entry and access. Uh, entry right, and access. Right from the start. Yeah. And it, it's a basic problem. You know, it's, it's, you know, to me, I think every single person in this country should be absolutely outraged that this is a problem that millions and millions of Americans face on a daily basis. Um, so, you know, the example I like to give is, you know, when, when someone has a heart attack, um, what do you do? What do you do first? You call 911 an ambulance comes to your house, you can transport it to the emergency department. Um, a doctor treats you um, and you make a recovery. But there's so many assumptions baked into that process that we don't even think about. So we assume that we can get into a place on demand. You can get into any emergency room if you have that acute need. You know that the place that you're going to is accredited and licensed. So they don't take you to a place that says, hey, Trevor, I have a new way of solving you know, your heart attack, you want to come try me. Right. Um, we go to a place that has those credentials and the physician that's treating you is also board certified. Um, you know, you don't go to someone and you don't ever wonder in that process, well, I really hope this guy knows what he's doing. Um, so, you know, one thing that we like to tell people is efficient processes in healthcare do exist. Um, and the fact that it doesn't exist um, in this particular space is something that we need to understand because it's been designed this way. Um, and that is what needs to be solved. And it's, it's going to take a lot of actors and a lot of stakeholders. Um, but I believe it can be done. It has to be done. Um, and if it, and if it's not done, then, um, we're going to have a lot more patients that possibly die because they're not connected to treatment when they need it. So when did you meet your partner? Yeah. So, uh, my partner, uh, his name is Chase. Um, he's one of my best friends from San Francisco. Um, so when I first moved out, um, Chase and I, you know, formed a pretty instant connection um, on just how we view life, you know, as as any young millennials would. Um, but you know, the the things that really kind of join us together are, are is really just a very basic principle. We 
you know, we want to work on something meaningful um, that gives us purpose, um, and we want to be doing it with people that we love. And I think as long as as long as we both can be doing that, uh, then I think that we will be we will be very happy. So um, that's what kind of uh, bonded our friendship. And after I was home and had done had done some research, I you know I reached out to Chase and, and asked him if he wanted to to take the plunge and and come join me in this work in Ohio, and he did. Amazing. Okay, so so you roll it out. How was it received? Yeah. Um, Initially. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, initially, I think, and even now, like we had, we were so fortunate to have such an amazing community to support our work. Um, it's very hard to do something in healthcare, um, in access, in transparency, um, that doesn't ruffle someone's feathers. Um, healthcare is one of the industries where. You have payers on one side, insurance companies. You have hospitals and health systems. And you have uh, individual providers like addiction treatment providers. You have investors who are now investing in these for-profit treatment centers. And you also have nonprofit treatment centers who have been here for a very long time. Um, so, you know, I think I was, I was very worried that as we were rolling this, this product out that you know, it would it would be uncomfortable for some groups, but I actually think that you know the need of this community um, in all of these stakeholders, um, you know, was met very courageously. I think that our success early on was because this community received us with open arms, um, and and I really really think that that's something that we will always be thankful for. Um, you know, obviously in rollouts there are things that come up, um, but those, but those are all things that I think made the product better. Um, so how do you make the product fair? How do you make it work for everyone? How do you make sure that the patient has the best experience um, and the providers know what's re- expected of them? Um, so, you know, anytime you have a marketplace of any kind, um, you know, for us, we have patients and clinicians on one side and we have, um, you know, addiction treatment providers on the other. Um, you have to kind of serve the needs of both. Um, but you know, for us, our core mission and our core focus has always been on the patient. And I think that that's ultimately the reason why we've gotten so much support from the community, um, is because that's ultimately their mission as well. So I'm just dumbing this down, Yes. but someone gets on the mm-hmm. website and the, the, the beautiful thing is it's so user-friendly, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be sexy. It's not meant to be right. It is, I type in my zip code, mm-hmm. my drug of choice or what, what I'm struggling with, right? what the insurance that I carry, right? and then I hit send. Correct. Right? Yep. And then, it, it. and then it spits out to me what? It spits out to you the addiction treatment providers that can accept your insurance, that are near you, um, and that can accept you as a patient right now. Um, those three items. So insurance, specific addiction type, um, and uh, location are three of the biggest barriers in searching for treatment. So, um, you know, one of the things that we heard when we first started doing research in in 2017, 2018, um, was this narrative that's very pervasive in in communities. Um, And it is true in some. In, In some rural communities, access is really hard, not because providers are not being transparent about if they have availability. It's because there's not enough providers. But in a community like Cincinnati or Cleveland or Columbus, there's more than enough 
providers to serve the need of the community. So what we heard time and time again were families who would say, I called 30 places and I couldn't find anyone that could accept me. Or worse, I found a place that didn't accept my insurance. But again, when someone is in such dire need of treatment, the first question that should not come up in your mind is, do they accept my insurance? But if, but if you don't ask that question, you will be stuck with a bill that is astronomical, that you will maybe even go in debt for, um, So, which is egregious. And I think we'll discuss it later in the podcast, but it's one of the biggest problems in this space. Um, and that has to do with the Affordable Care Act, but I'm in location. So people cannot, I mean, transportation is a huge barrier in healthcare. If you want to be going, if you want to receive quality treatment, we can't assume that you're going to, you can drive 50 miles away to a, you know, to a center in Columbus. Um, so the basic things that every single person that needs to do in the quickest way is knowing that the provider that I'm searching for is quality. They do evidence-based treatment. They are in my vicinity. They can accept my insurance or no insurance and that they can treat my particular addiction type. That is the least amount of information that someone needs to know when they're making an informed decision for their healthcare. Okay. So no insurance, is that an option? That is an option. There are- And the drag down menu, no insurance, you can- Correct. Okay. Right. Which is such a beautiful thing to include that because let's face it, not everybody has it. Not everybody could even be aware of the kind that they have. Right. You know, I mean, there's- Right. You know, HMO, PPO, uh, you know, all this- different stuff and somebody that's sick that's trying to that needs a bed right you know so i I think the beauty of making it very simple and three criteria you know instead of a you know going through page after page of a of a website trying to to get you know pre-qualified or that's the wrong language but whatever right that i mean that that's right and and the one thing the last thing i'd say is too often we we put an insane amount of responsibility with people that are suffering from a disease. So what I mean by this, and something that I always say in, in, in talks that I give or conferences that I go to, um, is people always comment with how easy the site is to use. So that interface that you just described um, on, on the website is the same that you will essentially see whether you're when you're a clinician using this inside of the emergency department. Um, so people always comment that the interface is so nice. And we actually spend a lot of time thinking about the design and the user interface and to ensure that it's a beautiful experience. Um, and, you know, people sometimes will also say like, oh, you know, it, you know, it doesn't have to be flashy. We actually believe the exact opposite. I, I actually think it does. Um, you know, when we think about, you know, I, I was I was telling this anecdote to a friend earlier is, you know, imagine, imagine you know, Verizon sends you a bill. You know, let's say they double charged you. And I'm not picking on Verizon here. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a happy Verizon customer. Um, but if Verizon accidentally double charges you, What's the first thing that you're going to do? You're going to call customer service um, and the number will be somewhere hopefully prominently displayed. And if that customer service representative told you, Trevor, Trevor, thanks so much for calling. Um, We actually uh, have a different department that will deal with this. Um, They'll get back to you sometime. um, But if you want to stay on hold, I can give you the 10 numbers of the 10 different departments that you should call and maybe one of them can solve your problem. You would end your Verizon contract immediately and you would be outraged. And that is the system that we have set up for people not complaining about a Verizon bill, 
but th- for the people that are suffering from a brain disease. And that needs to be a huge priority. So when so when so oftentimes in this in this space too, we say, oh, we have a local call center. We have a call center that can, you know, that you can call into. Um, you know, and we believe that call centers are important. There should be real people that can help you through this process at all times. But the call center people need to know where to send you in real time. So we I cannot tell you how many hundreds of families and patients in the first 12 months of research that said, Raj, when we called a call center, no matter what part of the state that you're in, we got a list of 20 treatment centers to call. I mean, that that idea that that's what we're giving to people are just lists that you have to navigate yourself for a brain disease. Um, when you're already drinking through a fire hose of sickness. Sickness. Yeah. And you're also fighting the stigma. And you're and when you actually and, and you know you muster the courage to say I'm ready for treatment, and stigma is a, a whole different topic. But when you finally had that brief window, and the thing that you get in that window is a booklet or a guide of thirty places. Good luck, Trevor. Good luck finding a place. And then we wonder, as a as a community, I wonder why people aren't finding treatment. We have availability. So if you make the road to finding treatment so hard then we do not have the right to ask that question. And we want to make sure that no one ever has to get a list of 10 names with 10 numbers um, and you know, with a note of good luck. I hope you find treatment. I hope you find who accepts your insurance. Um, that, that needs to, you know, we, a big part of our motivation and fuel is to ensure that no family and no patient, no person who's suffering from this disease uh, ever has to go through that again. Um, I wanted to go back real quick to your apprehensions initially with, mm-hmm. with ruffling some feathers may get ruffled. What was your concern with that? Yeah. So, um, you know, so I, I would start with this healthcare is a very complicated and complex industry. Um, one of the biggest pieces of advice, one of my mentors gave me um, in the very beginning of this journey was always understand what people's incentives are. Um, and that's, I mean, useful advice for anyone doing anything, um, but it's particularly useful in in this industry. So again, any other type of industry that you're in, um, it's it's fairly easy what what people want, right? So you know, the exporting goods, you know, their incentive is to sell you items, so you buy them. And as a customer, you want to buy quality sporting goods. Um, but so for healthcare, that equation is very com- is very complex. So diving into this for a moment, um, you know, money and talking about money and talking about sustainability and revenue and growth is a very taboo topic in healthcare um, because it's people that you're dealing with. So you know, let's take nonprofit community addiction treatment providers that have been in the community for a very long time who have done good work. Um, so. For, for decades, addiction treatment and mental health and substance use disorder was treated primarily by, and still is in many communities, by nonprofit community health centers, um, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, they, they have to raise money or they receive money from the federal government um, for covering patients that may be on Medicare or Medicaid, um, and they serve a big need. Um, the demand for treatment was so high and is still so high that for-profit treatment centers started showing up. Um, 
you know, anyone that's listening to this podcast can only guess the type of friction there are between for-profit treatment centers and nonprofit treatment centers, just like there would be for for-profit health systems and nonprofit health systems, different business models. Um, and they both are trying to serve the patient in their own way, but the incentives there are, you know, are a bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's already that kind of friction that exists in a community. And then you have, you know, health systems um, that everyone is trying to get partnered with. Um, and health systems want to effectively connect patients to tr- quality treatment as quickly as they can. Um, and then you have insurance companies. Um, and, you know, I, I could probably spend three days talking about insurance companies. But, um, you know, these are massively profitable companies. Um in our country, um, and yet they still struggle to cover mental health and substance use fairly. Um, that is egregious, it's outrageous, and it's something that needs to end. Um, the Affordable Care Act in 2008, one of, the, one of the things in it made sure that there was parity, that you have to treat, the, the, the bill said, you have to treat mental health, issues with the brain, substance use, the same as you treat problems with the body with the rest of the human body. So a broken arm is no different than you having an addiction. Um, but obviously, health insurance companies, I mean, any, I mean, if the government is telling them that you should treat something else, likely the welcome response will not be, you know what, we really, really should. Um, you know, the, so what is the incentive of the health insurance company when, when, when they're for profit and when they have public shareholders? Their incentive is to continue growing. But how do you do that when you have the same number of people that are paying into your health plan? Either you stop covering less things, you, you either you stop covering people that you currently cover, um, you stop covering pre-existing conditions, you want to take off risk. So, um, you know, th- there are there are people that work in the health insurance industry who we've met who are absolutely great people and who have the heart that, you know, we have and that we share that anyone with mental health or substance use treatment deserve quality treatment and it should be covered. Um, But the systems are so big um, and they make so much money that it's really hard to push that change. I mean, this law passed in 2008 or 2011, one of those two. and almost eight, nine, 10 years later, we still don't have enforceability of mental health parity. So um, when I say that we were apprehensive about coming to this community, when you drop something in, such as a more efficient way to connect patients to quality treatment, it opens up a lot of these boxes. Um, and, you know, it's one it thing that- exposes some things. It exposes some things. And I think, I mean, for myself, I think, you know, this is an industry that exposes your- um, your naivete very quickly. And I think that a lot of people in the healthcare industry will tell you that it's all about the patient. Um, and I think that there are very few players that that's actually true for. Um, and one thing that I can tell you for a fact after you know almost two, three years doing this is really the only stakeholders that have the best, the absolute best, most pure intention to care for you and to find the best treatment for you is you and your family. Um, and we have to do a better job to help those nurses, those care workers, those insurance workers who want to do the right thing. 
and we have to redesign the system so that the incentives are truly aligned for the patient. Um, and you know, I, I don't believe that we will be able to to change that um, alone. But I believe that if we can if we can help people understand how it works better. Um, then I, I think that we can we can at least start moving in the right direction. Okay, um, I just threw a lot at you. No, 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 because I I, I wanted. To, so you got those all those players around the table, at certain at certain points. Yeah, I mean, in, in this journey again, it's, it's very hard to avoid these players. Right, right everyone's right. trying to wonder, like you know, what what happens to what happens to the way that they've been operating. Um, so again, I mean, it's the same thing. I mean, honestly, Trevor, I think a, a really good way of thinking about this is the 2008 financial crisis, right? It's not that no one knew what was going, you know, what was going wrong. It was that the system was not designed to catch the failures of what was going on. Um, and it's, uh, it's very similar. I, I had an economics professor uh, who I TA'd for uh, at Columbia. And one of the things that he said, um, you know, was I, I was talking to him about, um, about healthcare randomly, and I was a junior in, in college, and he said, and I was like, yeah, healthcare is so broken. He said, Roger, no system in this in this world, whether it's healthcare or another industry, is broken. He said, every system works the way that it was designed to work. So, you know, healthcare is a very, um, you know, it's a very popular topic right now um, for good reason. There's 30 to 45 million Americans who have no insurance or who are underinsured. Um, I myself have catastrophic health insurance with an $8,000 deductible. Um, so it's it's broken, but we have to figure out, we have to take a step back and, and ask ourselves the question of who designed it? Where's the benefit going? Because there is a benefit that's going somewhere. Um, and it's not to the patients. You know, that's, it doesn't take, it doesn't take me to, to tell Especially people Especially in behavioral health. Especially in behavioral health. I mean, it's health. almost backwards. I mean, just for an example, my... Rehab costs about twenty five thousand dollars. That was ten days. Jesus Christ! Yeah, ten days. Ten days. Ridiculous. I got after thirteen months eleven hundred bucks back. That's crazy. So, so now you know once you reach your deductible, you're eighty percent covered. Well, this way it's you know you're once you pay all that money, you're you're ten percent covered. Yep. You know it's just so ass backward. The it, whole it thing is, is ass backward. It is crazy, Trevor. I think that, again, something else, you know, my, my mom kind of raised my sister and I with this, uh, with this central tenet of, you know, like society is judged by, by how you treat your most vulnerable. I mean, you hear it all the time, but she made sure she, um, you know, she really, inf- you know, got us to think that way. Um, and when, when we ask ourselves, how do we treat those that are suffering from this disease of addiction that has been propagated and has been manufactured by drug companies and drug distributors in this country. There are millionaires and billionaires who have who have been who have made their fortunes on the lives of hundreds of thousands of Americans in this country. That's the society that we live in. And we are asking basic questions. How do you find treatment? You had a $25,000 bill after 10 days. We are looking at patients that are the most vulnerable that need treatment with someone that they trust. And there are entities out there who will say, I have the magic formula as long as you have $50,000. The majority of this country doesn't have $500 for an unexpected healthcare bill, let alone 25,000. So what we're offering people as a society is do you want to be in debt for the forsaken God knows how long? 
or do you want treatment? And by the way, we're not even talking about evidence-based treatment. We're not talking about quality treatment. We're just saying, just believe yeah. me, Trevor. Right. Trust me that I will fix you. You are desperate and you just have to fork over 50K. Right. Is that the society that we want to live in? And is that the society that we want to be a part of, that we want to be leaving our children? Um, those are the questions that need to be asked um, because if things do not change, if we do not expose a lot of these practices, you know, it's 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 going to be, you know, it really will be a revolution because enough people are, ten, over 10% of the American population is affected with addiction. As some experts say it's closer to 15 to 20%. We already, I mean, we already live in, in communities with so much stigma, you know, just, you know, get over it, quit cold turkey. I can't believe, you know, he's an addict, all these terms that we use so loosely, but, you know, it's, it, people are suffering from a brain disease. We don't talk that way to people that are suffering from Parkinson's. We don't talk that way right. for people that are suffering from Alzheimer's. Um, but we do talk that way with people that are suffering from substance use disorder, which is a brain disease. Yeah. I was talking to somebody, um, and who is uh, involved in in uh, on a board of a of a well known, well respected treatment center? And we were talking about that particular thing: the ten to fifteen percent uh, rate of people that have an addiction in the country. And what seventy thousand people die, or I don't even know the number. But he said the numbers just aren't big enough. They're not big enough for the for, for to really tip the needle and interest the government to right. get involved. Right. And this was five years ago, but still, you right. know what I mean? I mean, that, and, and when that is, when the number, it's just not, not enough people are dying yet. It's what's on our radar. It's we exactly see right. it, but you know, so. Yeah. You it, know, it's funny because I, it's so, I'm so happy that you said that because that's exactly right. Um, you know, it, I, one thing I've been thinking about recently um, is I actually think that the number of people that are, I mean, there over an average of 130 Americans die every day. By the end, I mean, at the, by the end of these 24 hours, another 130 Americans will be dead. Um, and I actually think a lot of it, a lot of it doesn't have to do with they not enough people aren't, aren't dying. It's, it's stigma. I mean, so for example, uh, think about the coronavirus right now. I mean, I, I mean, everyone's worried about it. I'm worried about it. I mean, 20 times more uh, fatal than, than the flu, um, Think of how much outrage there is in this country already. Um, and there should be that level of outrage. People in our country are dying. People in Washington state have died because of an outbreak. That deserves outrage. Over 130 Americans every day are dying because of substance use disorder. That also deserves outrage. We should never live in a world where we're comparing outrage to another. There's a lot of stats that, I mean, that will blow your mind. More people have died in substance use disorder and addiction than the Vietnam War, the yeah. war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan combined. And but, it, but it all has to do with the fact that they all made a choice. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that's that's right. the one thing that people- Always say. That they say that, okay, well- a person with diabetes, they didn't really. They didn't really. Well, they were well, eating. They're eating a, a sack of fries, you know, right. on the hour every hour. But th that's the thing: is it is a, it is debatable for some people. And and here's what I here's what I like to say. And I think there's a reason why there's such a stigma. I think that there's, 
it is so unbelievable to me when people say that to me. And, and again, we meet people from all different sides of the spectrum, political affiliations, um, and we hear that all the time. You know, from you know families or people that may not be supportive of what we're doing. Why are we trying to connect people to treatment? They chose it. Well, like for me, I'll tell you what the choice was. It was the choice of companies like Purdue Pharmaceutical, the intentional choice to flood and to spread misinformation and false advertisements for decades on the addictiveness of opiates. That was a choice and they made it. It they also a, made $50 billion. They also made $50 billion. They also made, and, the, and drug distributors made the choice to ship those drugs, to ship thousands of pills to towns of 200. I mean, the only, I mean, and there are specific protocols that are required to flag anything that resembles, a, I mean, thousands and thousands of opiates to a town of 200. Um and you know, there's a the book Dreamland is very popular. Absolutely, um, absolutely incredible book. Um, but it highlights some of these stories. It highlights that the DEA saw that this was happening back in the early 2000s. The drug distributors knew this was happening. This idea that executives of these types of companies say, you know, we just didn't have the protocols in place. It's all bullshit. All of it is. It was a choice. It was an intentional choice. A lot of people got paid a lot of great bonuses and we have to hold those people accountable. It was not a choice for many. Right. Being addicted to prescription opiates for the vast majority of people was not a choice. People moved to heroin after that, after the government tightened the grip on prescription opiates. But the addiction in your brain was already done. You go to heroin, it's the more economical choice. And then you have the cartels, et cetera, et cetera, and and um, and we need to do a lot about that as well. But we cannot shift our focus, and we make sure we don't. That the people that must be held accountable have to be held accountable. You know, there's a lot of settlements that we're hearing about, but these settlements are, to me personally, as as someone in this industry, it's an insult. It's an absolute insult. We're talking about a few billion dollars, and they're so big that we're we're twenty ready, years later. Twenty years 22 later. Twenty two years later. That's the amount of money that we're putting on, I think, over 700,000 people and families and people have been affected. 130 Americans die every single day. And we're, and as a, as, a, as a country, we cannot be okay with that type of settlement. And we need to hold these companies criminally liable. I just yeah. have never, I mean, this, this, the opiate epidemic for me, Trevor, and for many families that you talk to, is the greatest humanly human manufactured epidemic of human history. This is not like other epidemics. We have constructed this every set of the way. They knew this was addictive. They marketed it anyway. They pressured doctors with high aggressive sales tactics to push this out. And you had some great doctors. You had some unscrupulous doctors. You had drug distributors who were, were happy to take the money the pharma companies, and they shuttle these drugs to these communities. And the losers of this entire game were the people that we see on the street struggling with this. It's the people and the friends and the family members that we know they're struggling with this. And this is a whole nother conversation, but now it's such a lockdown that the people that have legitimate pain right. are getting screwed. Right. 
because Absolutely. because you know their regimen that they need right is now cut off yeah you know so the whole thing's a fucking nightmare the whole the whole thing's a it, nightmare it, and, it and, and that's why i mean how how dare we judge anyone right um for you know i can't you know if, if it were me no it isn't you it isn't you um people tr- have a trust in their doctor you know if you have you know one of my friends she's one of my best friends from school um she told me such a funny story this happened about like maybe 16 months ago she had a i think a root canal or something done with her teeth she got like i think like 60 60 percocet or 30 day supply of percocet for a root canal and again there's a lot of people who are like well you can get more than 7 day supply well it's not being enforced so what happens when someone has told you trevor i'm giving you 60 opioids 60 vicodin now just take them when you're in pain um, but again and and as a as a as a patient you say hey doc is this addictive um and they say oh no 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 it's not now again i'm not i think there's a lot of blame that go to doctors Um but again if they're being showed studies by pharma companies that hey we have proven that's not addictive yeah it may not be addictive when you're being monitored inside of the ICU by licensed physicians who taper you off but right. but billions and billions of pills have flooded Cincinnati have flooded communities across this country um and billions and billions of dollars are also being made and have been made by pharma executives by drug distributors right. by their shareholders and we can't forget we cannot forget that this is a complex country these companies have investors there are a lot of big investing groups who have seen the returns of this mass atrocity sure um and hey, we need money money i mean it's that's all there is to it it's yeah. straight up money okay so but you have now implemented something that is going to help this right which is the beauty of it right okay but i like that let's let's turn back to positive yeah, getting... yeah. but but <laughs> i i also want to talk about something that could be uncomfortable for some there are a lot of people and providers that are good right but there's a whole lot more that aren't mhm south florida california i mean these people are popping up everywhere that's starting to get better but not every place is reputable correct So when you went through this and were paneling uh you know accepting people or or presenting to people and, and even today how do you okay they they may be accredited right but word on the street and you know your gut feeling is people that run th- uh, this company right uh that are putting your name stamping your name on this thing right. how do you how do you deal with that because not everybody knows what they're doing. Right. Um this is a great question. Um and it's something that you know we obsess over and think about a lot. Um so this is really the question of quality. You know, how do you determine that a place is quality? Um you know, in in home health, we do this with uh the star rating system. There's a lot of problems with that. Um you know, I know my uh, my my mom sells up uh, she sells pharmaceuticals she used to sell pharmaceuticals now she sells medical device but she would tell me stories um years ago that she would call on some home health nursing homes and their staff would be cleaning like crazy and they'd be like oh yeah we have our inspection so we got to get everything fixed you know i mean that that's just how it is and um so i would say when you know, qual- determining quality consistently is a problem in healthcare um it, this is not a problem in in substance use specifically but it is a very very big problem because of how many people can exploit this in our space. 
Um, so the way that we think about it is we try to take the most holistic understanding that we can when we think about quality. So one is we have an advising team. Um, so this advising team is is full of addiction treatment professionals who are some of the the thought leaders in our country regarding addiction and substance use. Um, one of the things that we made sure at the very beginning was we're, ending, we're entering an industry um, that is fraught with a lot of misinformation. And we want to make sure that we always are doing the best thing for the patient. And there's no other way to do that than to bring on the people that do it the best and are practitioners of that. Of that. So um, so we're very fortunate to have an incredible advisory board that helps us think about these questions. Um, second, I think looking at current the infrastructures that are currently in place. So one of the biggest kind of criteria for us that you have to have is you have to be certified by the Ohio Board of Addiction and Substance Use. Um, that board has been designed to do inspections, to do the review of the clinical practices. Um, it's been it, the documents that you send to the board include information like what licensed physicians do you have? Um, and this is really important because if you go to a addiction treatment center, but you can't see a licensed physician, how can you get better? You know, and, you know, luckily today there are waivers now that nurses can get and they can prescribe medications like buprenorphine. Um, but the program itself, who designs it? It has to be done by a, by a practitioner. But there are some programs that do not have that. A lot. A lot. So we ensure that the providers on our platform meet the criteria of the state board, whose sole job it is, day in and day out, is to come up with the best criteria. So that's one of the big things that we do. Um, also, for those listening, you are abs- any patient can request this from that provider. So if you're thinking about a provider, you can go to them and say, we'd like to see your board certification. And it should spell out very clearly what services they do, what services they don't do. Um, and, and that's a very important indicator. Um, another thing that we have is, and, and we're able to verify that, like the information that they say that they do. Um, if, you're, if you say that you're accredited, that information will be public and we're able to actually view your filing. So, so that, that are, the, are kind of like the more objective things that we can do. We have a patient um, on our, if you go to our website, there's, uh, you know, so you'll see a pop-up, like a chat bot. Um, that sole purpose there is to collect actual patient quality feedback. So when we think about quality a lot in healthcare, one of the things that we don't talk enough about is what patients actually feel during the experience. That's, that is quality, you know? So when you eat at a restaurant, you know, you, know, you, you may get a little survey that says, how was the food, Trevor? Um, that's what we should be doing in healthcare. We should know who has the best bedside manner. Now that's really hard to do, um, but we take any comments on our site when people have gone and have found treatment through our site very seriously. So when, if there are occurrences where someone has a bad experience, we notify those providers immediately. Um, it's a, it's a balancing act, but it's not as hard as I think some people make it out to be. There are, we always want to make sure that the people that need to make high quality healthcare decisions have the best information possible to do so. And the least that we can do is to ensure that that list is full of board certified providers whose, whose certificate and board membership is active. If they say that they're joint commission certified, that they actually are joint commission certified, um, and they, they don't have any legal actions against them. You will be shocked 
by the amount of providers that have filings against them in the attorney general's office. Again, you can search for that, but how many patients will actually do that when they're in when they're in crisis? So those are the type of things that we do. Um, and I will say this: it's I'll be the first one to say that it every rating system, every kind of measure of quality can be improved. Um, but quality is one of the biggest. Um, it's one of the biggest priorities for us, not just as a company, but as a as a personal, um, as a as a patient, as a family member, as a brother, as a son. Um, so this is something that we are committed to. That any health system that uses us or any patient that finds treatment on our site, we will always strive to do the best that we can do. Um, and that requires updating yourself on what is the most evidence based treatment. So, um, you know, we'll buprenorphine. Um, methadone, um, and you know, there's there's some papers that are now saying some different things about uh, naltrexone, uh, you know, it's known as Vivitrol. But you have to stay up to date on what research is telling you, what evidence based research and science is guiding you. And our platform will always move towards a direction that experts are moving to. And that's why we have so many of these experts as part of our advisory board, so that we never miss a beat and that we can be proactive when it comes to making these changes. So every place that you have available in your system, there's access to a medical doctor? Um, Correct. Yeah. Yep. I think that's so important because there's, you know, and I'm not knocking, you know, people that are out doing the right thing, Right. You know, treatment, everybody needs help, you know, but, right. but having a, not having a doctor on site when you're sick as a dog and having it be peer-based strictly, mm-hmm. I, I just don't find that to be effective. And that's where this kind of- We're talking about medical care for a disease. Right. Um, acute medical care for a disease. And you need a doctor on staff. Now- what we're getting into now and what one of our biggest features that are coming out now um, is very important because just having a doctor on staff doesn't tell you. And we heard this from thousands of patients on our site. They would say, hey, guys, uh, I went, I got my assessment, but I can't see a doctor for three weeks. So you can have a doctor on, on, on staff, but that doesn't mean you're going to see a doctor when you go in for your assessment. So... Again, in, in behavioral health, you know, I'm sure like this is the path is you need to go. You need to sit for a couple hours to get an assessment. Um, you know, it's so poorly understood that we have to have these long assessments that you have to sit through while you're in crisis. That, I mean, it's important. It helps your, it helps your treatment provider know what level of care that you need. And then you need your treatment. So there should not be a gap in a perfect world that after your level of care has been determined that you do not see a doctor. So the equivalent here is you go to the hospital and you know you are having a heart attack. How crazy would it be if they were like, Trevor, you are having a heart attack. Now you will see the doctor that will give you the medication in four weeks. Yeah. What happens? You die. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening with people suffering from this addiction. Mortality has been proven to go up the longer you don't get treatment. That's common sense. If you're suffering from a disease, an acute crisis, and you do not get medication quickly, 
it gets worse. Right. So this isn't rocket science. Yeah. And you're sending somebody home that is, you know, somebody that they're motivated, they get on the site. They're motivated, they're looking for treatment. They're right. motivated, they're at their assessment. If they're not whisked away, again, perfect world, which we're all striving right. for, is to get them into the facility same day, next day. Right. You know, that's that, that person has got a devil on their shoulder saying, hey, man, you know, another hit, another beer. You know, they're another chance that dying becomes a reality. Exactly. Sending them out with a loaded right. gun. You yeah, know? We have in our site right now, we have done a really good job. Our team has done a really good job with um, giving providers the ability um, and the flexibility to, if you go on our site today and you search in Cincinnati, you will see which providers can have, can give you an assessment today, can give you an assessment next day, can give you an assessment three to five days from now. Um, and now we're going to be rolling out the same feature for prescribers. It's important to know not just what the time to assessment is. It's important to know what is the time to prescriber. And I want to make one more point. Obviously, we're not going to live in that perfect world where every single provider in a community um, is going to be having you know instant time to prescriber. I mean, these are real costs that we're talking about. So if I was a small community provider... Can you afford a quarter of a million dollar physician on site every day? That's unrealistic. Again, it goes back to the economics of this industry and you and we can't forget that. We don't want to put these types of providers who are doing a really good job at a fundamental disadvantage. But again, our main focus is to get patients in as quickly as possible to the best treatment possible. That is our mission. We're not here to make providers in every community, every provider in a community happy. We're here to make patients happy. We're here to give families and patients the treatment that they deserve. Um, and that will be our focus. So we always say to every single person asked, like we are beholden to one person and that is the patient because that is what doesn't exist. So, you know, if your time to prescriber is a week from now, you'll be able to say that. And there are people who may want to see a prescriber a week from now because that's what their schedules allow. There are enough people. We always tell providers this because, you know, providers always ask questions like, you know, hey, I, I don't have the doctor on staff. I, I don't have the payroll to do that. But we always tell them like, do you know how many people are suffering from this crisis? It's not just people that don't have insurance. It's people that have insurance. It's every one of us. It is a thing that to me, we all should be united in. It affects every walk of life, every race, every ethnicity, every gender, everything. So if you provide quality service, all we want is for providers to focus on that. Just focus on providing the best, how, most evidence-based quality treatment that you possibly can. We will focus on making sure that patients find and have the ability to choose which provider can best accept them. And like any marketplace, people have different choices. But the best that we should be able to do as a community is to make sure that no matter which choice that they go with, that it's quality, it's evidence-based, and it will actually help the patient get better and not, you can get an assessment today. By the way, your doctor will see you three weeks from now. Right. No doubt. Okay. So uh, wrapping up, is there thought or plan to go national? Nationwide. There is. Um, and that is, that's actually the next phase of our journey. 
Um, so today we are very fortunate to have found great health systems to partner with. Um, bon Secours Mercy Health is a is a local health system. Um, they were one of our first partners. Um, and I can't tell you how thankful we are that we found uh, just the right champions in that health system who um, who wanted to do something about this problem. There are many health systems across this country that face this problem, and there's many health systems that are doing great things, and there's many health systems that are also not being as proactive. Um, and so they were, and they they really took a chance on us about two years ago. Um, so um, we will be expanding um, in in the states that that they have a presence in, um, and we also will be aggressively trying to pursue other health systems in this state, in every state, um, to give them this pitch that your patients that are coming in, that come in with substance use disorder, need a way to connect with quality treatment as quickly as possible. Um, and we have built that solution, and we want to partner with any health system who wants to do that. Um, so, um, and you know, we also work with Suma Health up in Akron. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm uh, you know very excited about the future. Um, but again, I think it, what's really important for for me and for Chase and for all the people that we've helped so far, and for any family who's listening to this elsewhere, is um, we are on a mission that you know I cannot tell you how meaningful this is for us because this is not something that you know people ask is what you're doing needed or is it a nice to have. Um, what we're doing is a necessity, and everyone in the community doesn't need to believe that. I'm not here trying to evangelize people that are that have their viewpoint, but for me and for the people that I know and for all the people that I know that have been brave enough and have trusted us enough to share their story, um, for those families and for those nurses that are on the front lines and the doctors that are on the front lines, um, we are not going to stop until patients get the quality treatment they deserve. And this platform is going to be an integral part of that. So we have mental health on the docket. Mental health is on the docket. Um, you know, it's it's something, you know, it's- You can't a, build Rome in a day, but I mean, it's- Exactly, it no. All, it all kind right. of funnels down because they both are very, very You important. can't separate mental health from substance use. Um, you know, co-occurrence is as common as it should be. You know, you, you don't, uh, people don't come in with just, you know, with just one problem, it's 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 a lot bigger than that. So, right. um, you know, again, one of the guiding principles, especially when you're so small, um, you know, as we have been, is there's so many things that deserve this attention, right. um, but we have to make sure that we are focused, that we do this very very well, um, and then our plan definitely is to to move on to uh, mental health um, because again, too many people suffer from mental health issues. And I think that there are um, there are endless ways to get involved. If there's anything that I'd like to leave everyone off with, it's um, find a way to get involved. It, it, it has, even if you don't know someone personally, it has touched you in some way. Either it's someone that you've met, that you've encountered with at the store. Um, people are suffering in this country. Um, you know, and, and I think that behavioral health is a big part of it. And we have to give our minds, the attention that we give to every other part. And I don't mean that personally. Everyone does that. Right. Insurance companies don't. Right. Um, so parity must happen. Yeah. Um, you know, another thing, 
which is political, which I, you know, I don't know if I want to, if, if it's smart to get into, but I'd, I'll do it, is the reason why so many people are getting treatment is because of Medicaid expansion. If we, if we stop that, that is going to be a death sentence for thousands and thousands of people today that are getting treatment. There are so many, another thing that we're a big proponents of, it's hard to be in this space and not be political. I'd say it that way, but we don't even see this as politics. This is just the right thing to do. Um, there are many um, people who are incarcerated who are now receiving medically assisted treatment, MAT. It's, you know, that that is you know, kind of the gold standard in, in, in this space. And even that has a lot of nuance, which, you know, um, if you are incarcerated and you are receiving medication, you should be receiving uh, treatment if you are addicted to opiates so that you have the best chance to re-enter society. Um, and there have been amazing people, amazing people on the ground who have made that a reality for, um, you know, their local prison system, yeah. you know. But where do those dollars come from? It comes from grants. It comes from the Cures Act. It comes from the hard work that many legislators legislators are doing. But this problem will not go away in a few years. This is a problem of our generation and of generations above us and below us. So for us, it, this is not one of those things that after one grant cycle, it ends or, right. you know, but so that's why we are such big proponents of making people understand that this is a problem that is going to span generations. And we have to make sure that we're building the right pathways. We have to make sure that insurance companies cover this um, and figure out, going back to my, what my economics professor said, we have to make sure that the healthcare system and specifically behavioral health works for us. We have to. Yeah. Literally thousands, if not millions of lives depend on that. Um, and uh, and we won't stop until we get there. Well, thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank Thanks you. for everything that you're doing. And uh, it's making an impact. And um, the, the way you're going about it uh, is, you know, make sure that it'll be there for the long haul. So well, I appreciate it, Trevor. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound. Artwork by Neltner Smallbatch and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.